Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. I am Justin Spiro joining you today. Happy to be here with our producer, Jag, in Detroit, as always. Welcome, Jag. Are you are you are you st- you still have a certain glow about you after that Michigan versus State game on Saturday night? Here we are recording this what four days later, and and you still have that you know what eating grin on your face. Oh yeah, it's going to be 361 more days of that glow. So we are just getting started. It is really the highlight of the sports calendar for me. It is the Super Bowl for me, the Michigan Michigan State game, which was triumphant on behalf of Sparty, 14 to 10, one of the. Weirder games, if not the weirdest game in the history of that rivalry. And I, I want to I start with this really quick. The Michigan fan base has been much maligned for being delusional, for treating Jim Harbaugh as the deity, for saying that Jim Harbaugh can do no wrong. And I think that criticism has been largely fair. But I think it's time to give the Michigan fan base a little bit of credit. Really? Uh, believe you're, it or not. Is, you're going here? Okay. This is a, and this is a rare place for me to go. <laughs> and, and I happen to be a big Jim Harbaugh fan. But what I've seen the past few days in the wake of this loss It is the first time, here we are in year three, the first time that we have seen the Michigan fan base finally start to come out of the cocoon and say, you know what, it is not acceptable to keep losing these rivalry games. We heard for the first two years a lot of, just wait, Jim Harbaugh can do no wrong, we're going to get this figured out, it's fine, we got the guy we need, yada, yada, yada. And there's finally a little bit of concern shown from the Michigan fan base where they're acknowledging reality and they're saying that this is a problem to continuously lose to the school up north 65 miles west. It's it's unacceptable to lose to Ohio State down south again and again and again. And they're, they're finally at a point where they're fed up. Now, I think some have taken it too far. There were people that I've read, and it's not the majority, but there were people that I've read that were calling for Jim Harbaugh's job, said if he doesn't beat Ohio State this year and win out, they should fire him. bit premature. Uh, a bit? <laughs> Just a bit. Well, you got to look where you came from. They, they won five games before he got here. Overnight, they won 10 with Jim Harbaugh. In year two... They finished sixth in the college football playoff rankings just on the outside looking in and were it couldn't have been any closer to making it. That Ohio State loss was just a disaster, and that was a bit unfortunate. They lost that game by about an inch. So, And that was in question, by the way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's easy to become a prisoner of the moment, and I, I think some people have gone a little bit too far with this on the Michigan fan base side. But I do think it's important to finally acknowledge and, and applaud the fact that they're they're stepping out and saying – this has to stop. I mean, they're, they're finally demanding something out of Harbaugh. He has been given a total free pass. The guy makes $9 million a year, okay? He is the highest-paid coach in college football right up there with Saban. I think they're, they're tied now. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's time to put up or shut up. You, he didn't get hired to go 9-3 and three or 10-2. and two. He just didn't. I mean, that may be your average year, but once every three or four years, he's got to pop off a 12-1 and one campaign. He just has to. And he's got to get in the playoff. And the playoff, by the way, is still in reach for this team. If Michigan wins out, not predicting it by any means, they will be in the playoff. I mean, that's a lock. So you can't count out Jim, Jim Harbaugh, but it is encouraging to finally see the Michigan fan base understand that this guy's not perfect. You have to demand more in year three. I think year four next year will be the key year. I think if they are treading water in that you know two three loss range next year, I think they're going to have a lot of issues. Well, you know, once you get to year four or five, you're talking about guys that he brought in from the beginning. You're talking you're talking about his guys that he recruited that he brought in. And I love how you're set it up as I'm going to give Michigan some credit here, and then it's like this twisted backhand compliment of like, well, I'll give them credit for realizing that. 
maybe they're not as good as they thought they were, or we are who we thought they were. We, <laughs> they are who we thought they were. Is that uh, a great quote? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, look, I don't, I don't have the utter hatred and contempt for Michigan that so many people do. I mean, my best friend went there. Some of my best friends did go there. I have a lot of admiration for the athletic department there in a lot of ways. They have a wonderful history. But really the fans there, I have more of an issue with than the school or the administration. I mean, the fans have been insufferable for years. We keep hearing about the the all-time record, which was largely an aggregate of scores in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s when, when black people weren't allowed to even play the game. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like a different planet. And if you look at, you know, again, you can always choose your timeline. If you want to look at it from 1950 on – Michigan State has six national championships, and Michigan has one. So, you know, again, there's no question. I'm not trying to make the argument that Michigan State football has a richer history or a richer tradition or that they're more prestigious or they're a bigger brand. I don't believe any of that. But I don't think Michigan is quite as good and meaningful and relevant as they think they are. And I think it was good. It maybe took a decade of getting their brains beaten in but they're finally starting to be a little bit more humble. And look, I, I don't despise you guys. Like I said, I, I mean, half of my friends went to that school. So I don't wish ill on you guys. It's not really the hatred you see between Ohio State fans and Michigan fans that are just at each other's throats. I mean, do I want to see you thrive? Not necessarily, but it doesn't kill me when you succeed. And really, it's just a matter of principle. I like to see expensive operations, which Michigan football is, run properly it's really just a principle thing it bothers me when things are run inefficiently just on principle whether it's sports or a, a shopping mall it doesn't matter what it is and you have are there any left shopping malls there's two or three actually yeah yeah you have to go to troy somerset <laughs> exactly you go, to, go to somerset or the mall of america minneapolis and that's yes. about it yeah. somerset's actually quite nice it but is. you know i i just i i think it's it's good for michigan fans to finally acknowledge that there is some room to go Harbaugh is not a guy that just can do no wrong. But you have to remember, for the few people out there, and I would say it was maybe 10 or 15% of the Michigan fans' responses that I saw, you have to remember you can't just blow Jim Harbaugh out of here. Because if you fire Jim Harbaugh or let him walk at the end of his deal or whatever you're going to do, someone's going to be replacing him. I mean, you're not closing down the program. So what is the alternative to Jim Harbaugh? What is the upgrade? I think you'd be thrilled if you found somebody as good and absolutely a, yeah uh, oh yeah there's a reason nfl teams would be lined up around the block to hire this guy if he made it known he was available and and you look at who's like a, a clear upgrade or as good as jim harbaugh in the entire sport college art pro i mean my list is pretty short i have urban meyer ohio state he's not coming to ann arbor no no nick saban alabama not coming to ann arbor he's not he's got he's got a he's got everything built exactly the way he wants just like belichick does in the nfl and he'd be your next guy to your uh, side, right? speaking of bill belichick uh yeah bill belichick i think it's safe to save no with no college coaching experience just on the football level if you're leveling the playing field he is definitely at least as good probably better than jim harbaugh He's not leaving New England to take a college job, so that's out. And then the only other name I could come up with, and maybe I'm nuts, is Mark D'Antonio. I mean, and that would be something. That, that, that's the craziest one yet. I mean, that's that's not going to happen, and that's the point. So for anyone that's saying, 
oh, Harbaugh's not what we wanted. This is your guy. And I don't think you're stuck with him. I think you're lucky to have him, quite frankly. I, I am still a big believer in Jim Harbaugh. If I were just being an objective person or if I were a Michigan fan, I said when they hired him, I thought he would win multiple national championships, not one, championships plural, as long as he stayed at least five, six, seven years. And You've you know, got to build the program. You've got to build right. the culture. You've got to have it exactly the way you want it. And I think he's done an overall very good job. He hasn't done a great job. He, he's been basically a B-plus hire, but guess what? Your last uh, two hires before that were uh, probably a C-minus and a C. So, you know, just be careful what you wish for. This is your guy. I, I think it's good to criticize. I don't, I don't believe in these people being beyond reproach. I think that's nonsense. But it's good to see you woken up, but don't go too far. Just remember, you have it pretty good. I don't know if you can go with the whole who's got it better than us line these days anymore because <laughs> there are a few that have it better than you. But you still have it pretty darn good with Jim Harbaugh. So bravo to the Michigan fan base for finally starting to acknowledge that you're not perfect. There are flaws with this program. There are flaws with this coach. But hopefully most of you still realize you have it pretty good. And hopefully they're dry after Saturday night by now. Oh, you would think. I mean, it probably took at least 72 hours, though. I went, uh, when I was 12, I went to a Jets-Patriots game at the old Foxborough Stadium, which was a dump. I mean, it was barely an NFL-level stadium. Torrential rains, 60-mile-an-hour winds. And the long story short, the Patriots ended up losing the game six to nothing on a f- when they fumbled in the six yard line with two minutes left. And my dad it was my dad, my little brother, me, and my best friend. My dad's minivan did not dry out for like a week. After oh, it's, it's terrible, and you just you just feel it in your bones too. Yeah. I mean, it, you feel it like the next day. Give for me sure. snow over rain any day. I'll sit through a game in snow over rain any day because the rain yeah. is what soaks through you. Yeah, no question. I, it, it's those New England winners too are. are Something to behold, for sure. They threatened me with Michigan winters when I moved here. I said, I'm really not that worried. Yeah, you're well-trained. You're broken in. So I'll, I'll tell you this. We're, we're having a, a guest on today I'm, I'm really excited to have. Uh, and we talked about the previous administrations at Michigan between Lloyd Carr and Jim Harbaugh not going so well. I don't think that this was this guy's fault. But uh, he was the head trainer for the Michigan football team. In 2008 through 2010, under the Rich Rodriguez administration, his name is Mike Barwis. We'll get him on the line in a second. Mike is a guy who spent 14 years at West Virginia as their strength and conditioning head coach, three years, as we said, at Michigan, and now runs his own company in Plymouth. He's a guy that had a ton of offers after Rich Rod was blown out of Ann Arbor and sort of Mike went with him. Uh, And he decided to go into the private sector and do his own thing. So we're going to examine that with him. I have a lot of questions about what happened with the investigation that the Free Press ran into his training, essentially, and the program as a whole, his experience there. I know uh, it's something that has been talked about a lot, but I have not seen Mike say anything on the record to anyone about his time there. So I, I think we're the first ones to really get him on the record with this stuff. So I'm excited. Mike Barwis joining us next. It's the Spiro Avenue podcast with Justin Spiro. All right, Mike Barwis, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. Welcome to the Spiro Avenue podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, buddy. It's a great opportunity. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Now, I want to talk largely about your career in Michigan, just in general. You know, you're hired by Michigan in December of 2007, and you get there, the first thing you do, you just gut the weight room. I mean, that was there was a big story uh, in the news about that, that you felt the equipment was antiquated, the system was antiquated, and you totally revamped everything. I actually happened to see the gym before and after. It was a, a night and day difference. 
So you, you get there, you're in Ann Arbor, you're immediately making these changes. What did you think about the culture in Ann Arbor when you arrived? Was it something that you saw was antiquated as, as well as the equipment? Was there something there that was a little bit too old school for your taste? You know, I, I love coaching in Michigan. I had a great opportunity there. I had a, uh, you know, met a lot of wonderful people. Michigan's a phenomenal institution. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, arriving at Michigan, it was, it was just a, a very different philosophy. I'm a very uh, scientific person. I'm a very, uh, uh, we utilize science in everything we do. But my background's in physiology, uh, school medicine. And, and uh, I don't, uh, we don't, we don't really subscribe to older philosophies. Uh, whatever is current, whatever is uh, is the most effective and was uh, scientifically proven are, are the philosophies that we adhere to. And, and um, there were a lot of things that had changed in the world of strength conditioning uh, from the time that, that that facility was built to uh, the time that we uh, we arrived. And, and it was uh, it was in it was in need of some some updates and some transitions and some changes and uh and we made those, you know, we made sure we stepped in and Michigan was incredibly supportive. You know, they invested a million dollars into renovating the weight room and making the changes and, uh, and giving us the things that we needed to, to enhance functionality. I'm much more, uh, functional capacity with training, uh, a lot more dimensions of training offering, you know, uh, proprioceptive type work with balance and functional training, impulse plyometrics, you know, biomechanical assessment with speed and agility training, putting in, uh, you know, different devices that accommodated aeronematic devices and uh, other updates in science that allowed us to do things that were very specified to performance uh, with, you know, a football team. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of times people say you train a football player or you train a, a position, and you really don't. You train a cell, uh, and then you inspire a person. So as a reality, you actually get down to a point of there's a law of medicine, which law of the body conforms and adapts to the intensities and directions habitually subjected to. What does that mean? It means what you do is what you become. And the specific stimulus that you supply to a, uh, the human anatomy will elicit a specific result. And you have to have the equipment and the devices and the necessary program to provide that stimulus if you want to elicit that result. So uh, our program was different, and, and, and it required us to – to make some changes, not say anything was good or bad, just make some changes uh, to enhance uh, the system so that it worked more effectively with our program. Now, Mike, you come in Ann Arbor. You had spent 14 years in Morgantown at University of uh, West Virginia University. Obviously, night and day. I've actually been on campus in Morgantown. I've been to Ann Arbor several times. It is really two different planets. Coming from that West Virginia atmosphere into Ann Arbor, totally different atmosphere. What was the biggest challenge for you culturally, or was there a pretty seamless transition for you? You know, I, I love people, uh, and, and, and I love my athletes. I mean, anyone who knows, I know you know Jack Johnson. Yes, Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson's blood to me. He always will be. And all of my athletes are. I don't, I don't coach to win rings. I've got 27 rings, and they're in a closet somewhere or in a drawer. I've worked with over 42 sports and thousands of Olympic and professional athletes, and, and I couldn't tell you – you know, I, where the rings are, what they meant, what the, I could tell you everything about the families. I could tell you about their lives. I could tell you what they're doing today. We interact on a regular basis. I do this because I love helping people. So for me, as long as people are involved, I'm going to be inspired. I'm going to be excited. And Michigan embraced me just like West Virginia did. I wasn't, I didn't have any animosity when I arrived there. I didn't have any problems. I showed up and Michigan was, was very, you know, the players were, were excited. The, you know, the team, 
was inspirational. The alumni backed us, the school backed us. So for me, the transition of, of just being involved with people that I was able to help, uh, and, and I still love my kids from West Virginia. I'm still affiliated with those guys. I still talk to them all the time. I still, they're, they're, they're my family. So as long as I can go downstairs and get focused on working with my family and helping people enhance their lives and change their lives and being an inspiration for them, on top of that, I'm happy. And, and, and that's, you know, from my standpoint, is the culture different? Yeah. I mean, you've got a different type of culture. You've got, you've got a blue-collar you know, coal miner, steel mill worker uh, environment uh, in West Virginia. And in Michigan, you have a very affluent, you know, more of a, a, a Ph.D. type community. Uh, and Morgantown itself, there's a lot of that, you know, but uh, of the Ph.D. type community. But, but the, the, the philosophy is a little different. Um, the mantra uh, or the feel of the, of the organization is a little different. But the truth is they both have great people. And if you get in there and you go to work for great people, it doesn't matter. All that other stuff goes out the wind. I'm, I'm a firm believer that half the time we get caught too much in, in uh, political correctness and, 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 and worrying about our image and not enough time focusing on the important things that actually matter. And if, if we get down to it, the first thing and the most important thing are the lives of the human beings involved. And uh, keeping that a focus has never been a problem for me anywhere I coached. You know, you made an interesting point. You said when you got to Ann Arbor and throughout your time there that you were supported, you had the backing of, of everyone around that program, and I, I think that's wonderful. I, I do think it contrasts, not necessarily in your case, but with Rich Rodriguez's experience there. I don't know if you ever caught the book Three and Out by John U. Bacon. He talks about this story in 2009, which is you know, year two of the Rich Rod era, that there was a lot of tension between Lloyd Carr, Rich Rodriguez ended up having lunch in downtown Ann Arbor, Lloyd Carr and Rich Rodriguez essentially confronted each other. Rich Rodriguez said that Lloyd Carr was undermining him and bad-mouthing him to people high up in the administration. Lloyd Carr said that Rich Rodriguez was not giving enough credit to the previous regime. I mean, it was this uh, apparently very tense lunch. And that was really the narrative throughout the entire Rich Rodriguez era that he just didn't really get the support and back into the program. I'm wondering, did you ever sense that with him? I know you said you were supported. Did you ever sense that Rich Rodriguez was not sufficiently supported by the fans and the administration at University of Michigan? You know, it was a tough time at Michigan for, uh, you know, the transition. I think there were a number of things that probably occurred there, and I, I wasn't in uh, those meetings, so I can't speak to those intelligently. Uh, but, uh, of course, I've heard of them, and, uh, let me tell you before we start, John Bacon is a, is a beaut. I love John Bacon. So uh, John used to come down and do stuff with us all the time. And, and it, was, it was a trying time. There were some people for sure that presented some heavy opposition. Uh, you know, and a lot of people blame that on, on Michigan. Listen, Michigan's a wonderful place. It's, 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 it's a great institution. Remember, you, you, people make mistakes. Blocks and mortar don't. So, you know, the institution's been there a long time, and, and do I think there were some mistakes made? Sure. Do I think Rich had a, a pretty tough time? Absolutely. That's not, you know, that doesn't necessarily, necessarily resemble the institution. It, it, it more or less were some specific issues with specific people who probably undermined and made things more difficult for Rich Rodriguez, and, and for sure he had quite a task. Um, but at the same time, you know, hey, look, we're, we're, we all face – adversity and we all face struggles in life and, and, and everyone tries to overcome those as Rich did and, and, and rise to the occasion. Uh, did the best we possibly could at that time and you know I, the kids were my family. I loved them all 
you know, as, as much as I possibly could, and I still do. And uh, it was, uh, you know, there were some trying times, but in anything that's great, you're going to have trying times. And that's, uh, that's part of the road. Uh, I, think, I think with the transition with the athletic directors was probably the most uh, difficult towards the end, and, and uh, Rich had finally got things moving in the, in the right direction, and you know, he just wasn't given the opportunity to move on, which, you know, hey, listen, whatever's best for Michigan is, is what Michigan needs to do. And whatever is best for Rich Rodriguez is what Rich Rodriguez needed to do. Me, I, I wanted to do whatever I could for the kids. And uh, that's, that really is what's best for me, to be honest. What fulfills me is the ability to impact the lives of the people I work with. And uh, if I don't do that, then none of it matters anyway to me. So, um, you know, we were able to do that. John, on the other hand, was, was he's, a, he's a beautiful guy. I actually spoke in a TED Talk right before him after I left Michigan. And uh, he spoke behind me on the TED Talk, and we were – I got to see him then, and I still stay in touch with John. But John asked to train with me. Uh, he went up to Rich Rodriguez and said, hey, I, I, I had a vast amount of NFL players that we were training in the morning, ex-players and other guys. And he requested to get in that group because he had heard, you know, some stories about the training and everything else. And I, uh, Rich called me up and he said, hey, would you entertain this? And I said, look, this guy's going to die. I don't, I, don't see how, I don't see how he's going to be able to train with these NFL players as a writer. I mean, this is this is quite a stretch here, and, and physically, I'm like he needs to sign some releases or something because I can't exactly slow down the workouts of the NFL players for a guy that's a writer. I mean, this is their career; they have families, they have lives. If he wants to come, he can come. And I kind of expected the opposite of what I got with John. John showed up and was in the fetal position in the first 15 minutes, <laughs> and was was uh, was literally. I told him, I said, John, if you want to do this, I'm. I, I, I really don't think this is wise. I think, you know, it's, it's dangerous for you. Uh, if you want to sign a release and you want to come in and work out with these guys, it's your choice, but I can't slow down for, the, for these guys. I can't ruin their lives just to worry about yours because you want to write a story, you know? And I didn't know him at that point. He's one of the most quality human beings you ever meet in your life. You'll love this guy. And he legitimately came in and, and he put himself through hell. I mean, he went in every day and we hammered him just like we were the pros. He's curled up in the fetal position. He's throwing up in the trash can. He's, and he'd just get back up and try again. He'd get back up and try again. And he, uh, after a couple of weeks, he said to me, he said, you know, because I really learned something when I was in here. You don't get respect in this gym by what you've done. You don't get respect by being an all pro. You don't get respect. You get respect by being a good human being who gives 100% of his attitude and his effort. He's like, I get the same respect as Larry Foote from the Super Bowl. I get the same as long as I do that. And I said, John, it's, it's, it's not about accolades. It's about what you're willing to do for somebody else. It's about your contribution to life and your willingness to sacrifice of yourself for the greatness of the other individuals. That's what it's about. If you're willing to do that, then I, we don't care. You're part of the blood. You just step in and let's go. And that's, you know, it was a microcosm of what's needed more in society. People to step outside themselves and say, I'm willing to go to a greater length to impact the lives of the people who surround me. And when you do that, you have greatness. And, and as a reality, he came in every day and, and did it. And he, uh, it's funny, when he does his speech on his book, I haven't seen it yet. He nags me and tells me i got to come. I love the guy. But uh, he said he always does a speech about me busting his chops for, for the training, and there's a chapter in that book about it. And he, uh, we were running the one day, and he'd been there for a number of weeks, but he kept skating out on the runs. You know, he, he had to go, and he, I found out later that he was literally so wore out that he would leave the workouts, go home and go to bed, sleep the entire day, and come back the next day. Oh, God. So, yeah, I believe uh, it. Yeah, it was, 
it was brutal. So we're running, and as a group, and he missed his time. He missed his time, and finally I got a little upset. And I looked over at him, and I said, John, if you miss this one, you're not just running. They're all running with the NFL guys. And the NFL guys looked over like, John, if you miss this one, you probably won't live. <laughs> and and John, John broke into a sprint like I've never seen before in my life from a guy who is not a professional athlete. And he somehow finished it on time and collapsed, ran right to the garbage can, was throwing his guts up. And uh, I told him that was the first time I didn't want to punch him in his face when he ran. Oh, so he, started, he started laughing. He was a beautiful guy, man. And, and his, his book, you know, it definitely depicts uh, much of the situation and the struggles and the, you know, I've always just tried to be a guy who focuses on what I can control and do the best of my ability to, to make change in people's lives. And, and I was able to do that, you know, and, 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 uh, and Michigan, Michigan was good to me in that setting. Did Rich have his struggles? Sure. He had his struggles. Uh, was everything always fair for him? No, it wasn't, but it also doesn't reflect poorly on the university of Michigan. I think there were some specific people with, you know, athletic director changes and other things that definitely adversely affect that circumstance. Well, in, in John Bacon's book, which is just fantastic, he really singled out Michael Rosenberg at the time of the Detroit Free Press. He had told several people that he was determined to get uh, athletic director Bill Martin fired. Rich, Rod- <laughs> excuse me, Rich Rodriguez didn't belong there. He had made it very clear that there was an axe to grind against Rich Rodriguez and that administration that hired him from day one. Very tenuous position for a journalist to be in. I mean, I have a journalism background. That's something you just can't do in that spot. And really, the Rosenberg investigation, so unfairly in my estimation, implicated you and the training staff. It was a, a much ado about nothing, something about the, the amount of stretching that was logged on a Sunday by lower uh, subordinate staff on the training staff. Was it frustrating for you, knowing that you didn't do anything wrong, having that long, drawn-out free press investigation, knowing that you had done everything to the best of your ability and you knew you didn't really break any rules. That had to have been tough for you. You know, I, I think, you know, like you said, I mean, I'm sure there were some guys that had some actions to grind. And, and uh, how that played out, you know, again, I don't really ever focus on that stuff. I just focus on being the best I can be for the people I care about. And, and uh, you know, for sure it was a distraction, and it made the coaching job significantly more difficult uh, and, and, and a lot harder to be successful and win when you're rebuilding something uh, and you're going through those types of things. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, being four minutes over on a stretch that was verified and okayed uh, can be frustrating. Um, but when someone has an agenda and there's a plan and, and, and I can't you know really reflect or say, you know, whose agenda or anything else is it's for me it's not about throwing stones at people i mean we all live in glass houses so be careful when you throw stones so you know from my 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 standpoint i try not to be that type of guy i try not to be a guy who reflects and attacks or or really really points fingers at anybody i uh i just try to be a a good man that does the best of his you know the best to his of his ability in, in impacting those around me and but for sure it had an influence i mean it had a massive influence on on the, the psyche of the kids and the motivation and the direction it was happening, the instability and, and the inability to coach effectively uh, with the football staff. For me, I tried to be the glue. I tried to come in every day and be the glue and tie the kids together and, and bring them back from it and, and tried to say, hey, look, don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. Let's just focus on you. 
and do the things we can do to control uh, the environment we're in. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And I didn't feel like reacting to it poorly, so I didn't, you know, and, and uh, we went in there and we, we went to work and we got after it anyway. And, you know, we're, we're, we're some of them, you know, some pretty, pretty uh, crazy level of investigation for, you know, someone claiming that there's a four to five minute difference in a stretch. Yeah, for sure. That's a little, that's a little lofty. But uh, at the same time, uh, it was also something that we had discussed and had approved uh, when we first came in. So there were a lot of, a lot of things there. And as it turned out, you know, we didn't, we didn't really suffer the implications as an end result um, from our staff. We weren't, uh, we weren't actually, uh, you know, uh, the NCAA was fair as an end result and came through and said, hey, look, you guys, this isn't really the major impact here, this, this uh, stretching thing that was, that was stated. And, and uh, you know, quite frankly, um, it really wasn't something that, that they, they put any pressure or any load on us or other things that they addressed uh, with, you know, the coaches and, and staff that they felt, you know, should have been done differently. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, I think it changed a lot of college football because the things that, that were being brought up were done, you know, frankly, by the previous regime and almost every other team in college football. So it's, it, they were things that I don't think anybody realized were issues. And, uh, and you know, you, sometimes someone has to be the example uh, and if a person has an axe to grind, that example can be whatever they created. And, you know, media, I, I, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great media people, and uh, the people there were great media people, but media has the ability to manipulate the variables and make things seem the way they want because they have the voice. You know, we talk about the, uh, you know, the ability of free speech and the ability to talk. Well, I don't actually know if that fully exists when it comes to the media because the reality is oftentimes – they set the opinion that they want in circumstances and they voice a, a specific opinion. Uh, but the other person doesn't have the equal voice. So now publicly the person that they're speaking about, they can kind of change things any way they want to change it and make it look the way they want from their agenda where that human being who they're talking about can't just get on TV and the radio and say, here's my interpretation and why this is wrong. So it really isn't a free speech thing. It's actually a manipulative setting when someone takes advantage of that circumstance and 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 it's you know it, it actually gets to a point sometimes and i'm not saying this circumstance or any other where it becomes fraud and slander and uh and, and really should be less than free speech uh because you're you're conjuring a vision that actually does not exist um so that happens in athletics that happens in in politics that happens in in uh you know in uh entertainment that happens in all those windows where people pass judgment because they feel they have the right to do so. And I think what we need to do is take a breath and step back and just say, Hey guys, look, these are human beings. They have lives, they have families, they work hard, they do things to the best of their ability. And if they're doing something wrong, then they should be accountable for that. Uh, if they're, if they're not, then let's not create an environment uh, that is not honest and conducive to the actual setting that's, that, that is taking place. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's all the things that happened there. I'm not privy to a lot of the information and a lot of the things that did occur. Uh, I was downstairs coaching, you know, but at the same time, um, I'm sure there were probably a few things that were probably inappropriately de depicted and, and stretched and, uh, 
from my standpoint, my goal was to not let it affect who I was or affect the people I worked with. And, and, and I tried to do the best, of, uh, that to the best of my ability to ensure that the kids weren't bearing the burden. And, uh, and that if there was a burden to bear that I carried it on my own shoulders and I took responsibility for any mistakes that I made. When your time was up at, at Michigan, you had really schools lined up around the block to hire you. I mean, that speaks its own volumes there. I mean, you, you had a multitude of offers around the country by many reports and yet you decided to, you know, go a different direction and, and open up your own business, go into the private industry and open up uh, just an incredible facility in Plymouth, uh, Barless Methods. I, I'm curious, you know, what, what inspired you, despite those stack of offers on your desk for these prestigious jobs, what inspired you to go into a different direction? You know, uh, for me, you know, I, I, I had the opportunity to coach for a long time and, uh, you know, when we were West Virginia, obviously we were highly successful and getting ready to play for the national championship. I think we were 33 and three or 33 and four in three years and have won, you know, three, three or four in a row, Big East championships. And we, we, we were doing well. I also worked with every other sport. You know, I worked with every sport there from women's soccer to women's tennis, from just everything you can imagine. When I went to Michigan, you know, I had the luxury of working with softball and, and, you know, and, and working with, uh, you know, soccer as well and doing stuff with baseball and having the opportunity to work with the hockey program and the wrestling program. And, and, and all those things were fun. Any, anytime I get the chance to, to affect these kids, I mean, that's huge for me. I want to provide guidance. I want to change their lives. I want to give them the resources scientifically and, and with motivation to achieve their dreams. That's always been my goal when I go to work. Now, Am I tough sometimes? Yeah, I'm tough. I'm not going to lie. I'm tough. I push people, but it's all tough love. And at the end of the day, I'm the one that hugs every guy or girl and tells them I love them. And, and when they're struggling, I'm going to be there. And you can ask any athlete I've ever coached. That is my relationship. They are my family. Um, the last couple years at West Virginia, I had some talks with my wife, who was also a strength coach with me for, oh, geez, I guess nine years. Um, and I just told her, I said, look, you know, she said, Mike, you know, you seem like there's more you want to do. And, and I said, you know, babe, I went into medicine physiology originally because I wanted to impact lives. And I think I'm doing that here. I, I get to see young kids that are, you know, maybe they didn't have a, a mom and a dad involved and maybe they struggled in life and maybe they haven't been able to, you know, because of the way society is, society definitely ordains circumstances on people and, and puts it in you in a position where you have less opportunity to achieve. And, and uh, some of these kids from coming from an, self-perpetuating poverty situations that just never leave generations of their family uh, had a bigger struggle than other people. And, and, and me having the opportunity to say, look, if I help this person achieve their goals and their dreams, I don't just change their lives. I don't help change their lives. I actually help them change generation upon generation of lives so that their family never ever starts in the same place and they're rid of the, the self-perpetuating poverty situation that occurs in many of these environments. And, and that was the big goal for me. When everything stopped at Michigan and, and, and the commotion all ended, and I said, baby, I, don't, I just don't know if I'm doing everything I need to do. And my wife, her father's a preacher, uh, and uh, she was brought up, you know, a, a strong uh, woman of faith. And uh, she looked at me and she said, you know, sometimes you get the opportunity to do what you want to do. And eventually, you get the opportunity to do what you're supposed to do. And if you walk away from it, then you deny that opportunity. And she said, I said, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to 
I'm top of the game here. I can I can do well in this field financially for our family. I love what I do with athletes. I get to do what I love every day. But I'm always going to have that hole where I know I could do more with my scientific background, my knowledge, my motivation, my abilities. And and I said, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to take care of our family financially if I don't do what I do. And she looked at me and she said, look, you didn't have a lot when you were young, and nor did I. And I said, sure. And she said, but were you happy? And I said, yeah, I was happy. And she said, well, then what are you worried about? I'm with you. The kids are with you. Stand up. Do what you got to do. We'll figure it out. So uh, I made the decision to, to open the centers, and we brought we started a charity called the First Step Foundation, and we started raising money for people with disabilities and funding their you know, their braces and other things they do and helping them with their support, their training. And we paid for training for so many kids and, uh, you know, just did, did as much as we could do. And that foundation's grown tremendously. And, you know, we've had uh, over 100 people now that with disabilities that couldn't walk or had other neurological disabilities that we've helped. We've got staff for neurolog. We designed neurological reengineering from scratch, and have a specific training protocol that we utilize for all types of neurological disabilities. And we've got physical therapists and physical therapy programs in our company and all kinds of neat stuff where we're, we're trying to impact those lives. And um, all that stuff starts with a catalyst and Brock Mueller and his family, Elliot Mueller and their family were that catalyst. You know, that was God's gift to me. They laid a moment. People think I was their gift to them. No, it's the other way around. They were their gift. They were his gift to me. And, and, and what they've gone through and what they've done has now afforded hundreds of people the opportunity to achieve and regain functional movement in their lives. And now those people train right next to the world's top athletes. They stand next to the best athletes in the world as was shown on the TV show, like Richard Sherman and, and a, a young man's taking his first step who's eight years old. And, and the best athletes in the world are inspired by that as equal or greater in equal or greater amounts than the young man is by watching his hero. And it's, it's about human beings motivating human beings, being inspirational for each other. Society really takes that out of us a lot of times. And we forget that the humanistic part of us exists and that if we're willing to sacrifice of ourselves and we get in there and we fight alongside another person, there's something special that sparks. It's the same special thing that takes one and two-star recruits and makes them the best team in the country. Just it's a, that little piece of heart. And, and that's, that's what we've done. So now we have 37 companies. Uh, we were all over the world, uh, and we, we still do it every day. And I try to, I try to wake up every day and, and look myself in the face and say, I want you to be the best you could possibly be for the people you come in contact with today. And we've got a motto on our wall that says that the people we work with today mean more to us than we do to ourselves. We'll be good at our jobs. And, and, and that's it. That's, that's who I want to be. I, I don't want to be remembered. I'm not special. There's nothing amazing about me. I just want people to look back and say he was a good man and he gave the best of himself to everybody else with every opportunity he had. And, and if I don't achieve that, then I fail. Oh, Mike, well, it's just an incredible story and background and all the work you've done with people in, in tough situations. It is truly inspiring. And yeah, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, just incredibly thoughtful answers throughout and definitely offered a lot of insight into that era at University of Michigan, which was tumultuous in a way with the relationship with the media and we really appreciate your time shedding some light on that and talking about your career after the fact again we know you are probably the busiest guest that we've had on so far maybe you and jack are uh, about tied but uh, we really appreciate your time mike thanks so much 
Thanks, brother. I really appreciate you guys, and I'm half the man Jack is. I just hope to I aspire to be as good as he is every day. If I can do that, I'm pretty good. And I, I respect all you guys, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope you continue doing what you're doing and 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 speaking the truth to people. And uh, God bless y'all. It's the Spiro Avenue podcast with Justin Spiro. All right, it is time for our revamped final segment. We are bringing back our final segment, which was so popular that first month or so. We tweaked it a little bit. We've been working on it with our new producer, Jag. It is the newly named Things I Like, Things I Don't Like. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so And I don't feel so bad when I realize I live in the great state of Michigan where we have two major college basketball programs at the University of Michigan and Michigan State University led by two of the most honorable men in this profession. And it is a dying art. And I wanted to call to your attention an interesting contrast in in the response. Now, everyone has been following this story for the most part. This FBI probe in the college athletics, Rick Pitino, has been effectively fired. There are other names supposedly on the chopping block. A lot of people are starting to sweat, and some people are resting very comfortably. So let's start with Tom Izzo's response when he was asked about the federal probe into college athletics. Can it be a good thing long-term for college basketball? I mean, can the feds clean up this game? Well, disappointment would be the first word I'd use. You know, I'm disappointed because I don't know if anything's any good when it's uh, when it casts a, you know, kind of gives you a black eye for for your profession, whether it be yours or mine. Um, I'm I'm not sure that I would ever hope that something that negative has to be done to clean it up. But uh, to be honest with you guys, I've been on the road. I know very little more than you guys know. You know, it's. Uh, this is a new frontier, you know, I've never seen really in a long, long time. I wasn't around with the gambling of many, many years ago when the federal government gets involved in something. But it's just disappointing from what I've read um, and what I've heard. But, um, you know, right now I'm going to just focus in on our team. I'm going to focus in on what we can do today in practice. I'm going to focus in on that football game tomorrow and, and see where it takes us. You know, Tom, Tom Izzo's putting you to sleep. Tom Izzo is just saying, eh, I don't know, you know, it's disappointing. I don't know really any more than you guys do. You know, it is what it is. It'll play out. We're focused on our practice. We're focused on that big football game coming up. This interview was last week. Tom Izzo's just, just whatever about this whole FBI investigation. He was asked a, a number of questions on it on a number of occasions, and his response essentially put you to sleep, and he just doesn't really care. I mean, it's disappointing, but it is what it is. Now, we go to Lexington, Kentucky. Just yesterday, John Calipari at the Kentucky Wildcat Media Day is asked about the federal probe potentially into his program. Anyone here have a question about my team? Please. Uh, John, one more question about the FBI. Anybody have a this, question? No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a media day, not coach day. I am entitled to ask a question. Ask you it. can then deny, okay. not answer. Ask Fine. It. The FBI reportedly has expanded into looking at Nike. Kentucky is a Nike school. What reassurance would you give your fan base, the Big Blue Nation, if they're anxious about 
what this could mean. Well, again, you're acting like you know something that I don't know. That's all I know. Yeah, if you could actually see this clip, and I know you can't, but if you go find it, John Calipari is sweating. He's rubbing his head. He's leaning back in his chair. He leans back forward in his chair. Very uncomfortable. Oh, he's just, he's so uncomfortable with the question. And he says, you know, go ask it. Ask it. You know, he repeats it twice. Ask it. I, I love the reporter, too, that called him out and said, this is not coaches' day. This is me. Because some of these college coaches have, you know, whether it's Nick Saban at Alabama and football or it's, you know, well, formerly, uh, formerly Patino and Calipari now in Kentucky, where it's like, they have this deity, oh, can't be touched thing about them. No, 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 this is a media day. You're going to let me ask my damn question. Yeah, and good for the reporter. But here's the thing that I like, and that's why it's part of this segment. In the state of Michigan, you have John Beeline and Tom Izzo putting people to sleep with their responses to this. <laughs> and you go down to Lexington, Kentucky, and you have a guy sweating, combative, angry, wants to talk about anything but this. Izzo and Beeline each would be willing to ask all right, be asked and answer 15 questions in a row on this if it was, you know, so posited. And that's something, again, it speaks volumes of their ability to sleep at night and the way they operate. There was uh, just this year a poll of 100 coaches in college basketball who were the most honest, trustworthy coaches in the game. John Beeline was number one. Tom Izzo was tied for sixth. Uh, there was a, a top eight that was compiled. Tom Izzo was the only of the top eight that actually has won a national title, which is kind of cool. I mean, you're honest and have won at the highest level. But, again, in this state, you have two of the most honest coaches in the game. And, and John Beeline, according to his peers, is the most honest. And, you know, for all the frustration we have, this is something that is shared by Wolverines and Spartan fans. I've seen it again and again. For all the frustrations we have with recruiting, that we miss out on these guys that – uh, Parabalaro Bamba guy that went to Texas. Well, can you give me that name again? Uh, something Labamba. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he's like Richie Valens inspired, but some big, big center. I mean, he's tall. He's like 110 pounds, but like 7'3 or something. Hey, but Michigan lost out on him. They were frustrated. Uh, Michigan State has lost out repeatedly. Josh Jackson, Ty, you know, Tyus Jones. It's been one guy after another. And they we've lost to shadier guys that, uh, frankly, have not been on that top eight list. Now, I don't know anything about John Calipari's program in Kentucky. I know he's left two programs with sanctions. This would be lucky number three if he gets implicated in UMass this. and... Uh... UMass and uh, Memphis. Right. And he's had wins vacated at both schools, Final Fours vacated at both schools. He's left both an absolute mess. And there's reason to be suspicious based on their recruiting at Kentucky the second he showed up. This isn't Billy Gillespie's Wildcats. So, you know, I, I don't know anything about Calipari, but the body language expert would compare, and you could just listen to the inflection in the voice, the general tone, Tom Izzo's response, eh, whatever, you know, it's we're just going to practice, and this is sad, it's too bad. And then Calipari, who looks like he's he might have a stroke, like he's going to pass out. I mean, it, it's just... That speaks volumes. I think Calipari is very nervous. Again, that's just my interpretation of his body language and the response. But the thing I like is that we can all sleep nice and sound in this. <laughs> for all the recruiting battles we've lost, when the shit hits the fan, 
we're just kicking back our feet and we're relaxing. So bravo to Michigan and Michigan State Nation for being on the good side of there's, this. There's this, like you said, a natural calmness to Izzo and Beeline and a shadiness to the Patinos and Calipari's, like a, a sliminess almost that you can't put your finger on, but it just it, it makes your flesh crawl a little bit, some of these press conferences they do. Yeah, and again, if you have nothing to hide, you're not going to be combative with the reporters. You know, if you have nothing to hide, it's like, ask me whatever you want to ask me, and that's what we've seen from Beeline and Izzo. That's not what you've seen from John Calipari, for example. The Izzo clip was akin to Bill Belichick saying we're on to Cincinnati. Oh, I almost ago. fell asleep. I, I'm supposed to be producing an entertaining show here, and I almost fell asleep during it, but that was the point. I mean, the point is... It was a 60-second clip, and it felt like three minutes yeah. because it was so, yeah, well, it's, it's too bad. There's just, there's just nothing there, and it's wonderful that nothing's there. So that is what I like this week. Now it's time for the thing that I don't like. Bring out the tarp. I can't watch this anymore. It's over. Turn the lights out. Let's get the bulldozers in here and turn this place into a parking lot. Now a, a favorite target of mine, as much as I hate to say it, Greg Krupa of the Detroit News. The Detroit Red Wings at the time of this recording are 3-1, and one, a bit of unexpected early season success, and that means that the Detroit news writer Greg Krupa is waving the pom-poms as ferociously as ever. This is a guy who is a professional journalist and for some reason thinks that it is appropriate to live tweet these games as if he were a casual fan. So instead of just talking about this, I'm going to go right to the source and let you hear it from the horse's mouth. These are actual Greg Krupa tweets from the last two Red Wings victories. These are just read verbatim. Okay, keep in mind, this is a professional, ostensibly objective journalist with no skin in the game that's just there to report. Quote, FERC's signature is that genuflection at the end of the BOOM, in all caps, after a FERC goal. FERC will go by ya, through ya, over ya, around ya, exclamation mark. Ha word, ha word, ha word, ha word, in all caps. This is a, a journalist, by the way. For Anthony Manta, after he scores a goal. A manthastic wrister, professional journalist. After Luke Witkowski ran a guy into the boards, I'm voting Luke Witkowski for governor, hashtag Red Wings. And the funny thing with Greg is we've seen a lot worse from Greg with this tweet game. He's called uh, Dylan Larkin uh, essentially a love interest of his. I mean, in so many words. Yikes. Those are in, those are in his words. I, I'm just I'm paraphrasing, but almost an exact quote that – he has something special for Dylan Larkin. Uh, he said that Dylan Larkin makes him, quote, giggle like a little girl. Uh, look, you know, I happen to know Greg Krupa. Uh, not well, I'm not saying we're friends, but we've met a couple times. You're certainly not after this. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely not. But, the, you know, Greg, Greg's a good guy. He really is. But this is not journalism. This guy, he's, you know, he's not the DetroitRedWings.com beat writer if you will i hesitate to even use that term but that's a thing now he's not a bought and paid for guy officially i don't know how the detroit news from an editorial standpoint continues to have a guy go online and tweet things out like ha word ha word ha word in all caps after jimmy howard makes a big save well, justin let me ask you this you and i both have journalism backgrounds you from michigan state me from syracuse is it, I, I can understand where you're coming from on the journalism piece of it, but a lot of it is know your audience. 
is he just playing to the diehard, bleeding Detroit Red Wings fans? And is that going to increase his popularity? You can, I mean, you can you can go after him for the textbook stuff, but is he just playing to a certain audience? Well, he's definitely playing to a certain audience, but I mean, that comes at a price. You can't you can't pander without sacrificing credibility. It's no different in politics. I mean, yeah, I, you're not wrong. That's exactly what he's doing. But guess what? What he's doing comes at a price. If you're going to pander to people as a professional journalist, there is a cost to that. And I think he's paying that. I think people, first of all, I've spoken to numerous people, including one at his own newspaper, that think it's embarrassing. I, and Greg, Greg, from a technical standpoint, Greg Krupa is a good writer and he's a good guy. But this bit on Twitter where he's openly cheering, it, it, it flies in the face. You went to the second best journalism school in the country. I went to the best. We know. Ah, uh, well, we, we can get into that later on. We North know. Northwestern grads might might have a or Missouri grads might have something to throw in there as well too. Well, but. we'll let them have a vote when they're in studio sometime if we ever, <laughs> if we ever get one in. If you uh, if you well, let me go go back to the Detroit news here. Yeah, yeah. Are you saying that because he is a beat writer or whatever phrase you want to use yeah. for the Detroit News, a legitimate uh, news organization here in town? Yeah. Is he not allowed to be a fan? Is he not allowed? Am I, you know, is he not allowed to get excited when the Red Wings score a goal or when Howard has a great save? Mm-hmm. Is he not allowed to do that on Twitter? I don't see. I, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. It's not hard-hitting journalism, but is he not allowed to be a fan if he works in the sports media? Not when he's working in his capacity as a journalist. And I'll give you a great example of someone who balances this tightrope perfectly. Tony Paul from the same publication, the Detroit News. This guy's Twitter handle is Tony Paul 1984, an homage to the 84 Tigers that won the World Series. He is, I'm telling you for a fact, the biggest Tigers fan I know. He loves the Tigers. He also covers them professionally. And you know what? If you didn't see the 1984 handle or know Tony personally, you would have no clue that guy was a Tigers fan because he can separate being a journalist from being a fan. Tony's the guy that walks that line perfectly. This is not this is not Greg Krupa on his night off cheering for the Red Wings. That'd be different. And I think your point You're would, saying he's doing this from the press box. He's of the doing game. this in his capacity as a journalist in the press box. He is tweeting out when he tweeted out that Dylan Larkin makes him giggle like a little girl, an exact quote, he was in the press box at the Joe Louis Arena. So if you want to say that a journalist can have a night off and cheer for the team, uh, of course. Now, I would argue they probably shouldn't be using the same Twitter account they use for work. Maybe you have a personal account. Maybe you just text your buddies. Certainly you're allowed to be a fan. I, I think it's hard to just cut that off. But, again, there are examples of people that have done this appropriately. Tony Paul, I just gave you the best one. You can do this without sacrificing your journalism credibility. There's, it, there's an know. old adage of, of no cheering in the press box, and you're saying he's cheering in the press box just with his thumbs as opposed to his mouth. Cheer, the, cheering. John, some of these things are like they're pornographic almost. <laughs> I, I, it's like they're going to have to start reporting some of these tweets for how inappropriate they are. I mean, it's it, it's creepy stuff. And I don't, I don't think he's actually a creepy guy for the record. I mean, I, I'm not lobbying that against him. But I, I just think if I had a friend that was not a working journalist that tweeted stuff like that or sent me a text with stuff like that or said stuff like that, I would think that they were a fanboy and they were over the top. But at least they're not working in their capacity as a journalist. You cannot be in the press box covering a game and tweeting out chants for Howard, saying that it was an incredible wrister with these these cute little nicknames. Real journalists don't use nicknames for guys. They don't. He, every time Morazic makes a great save, he says Morazikulous. I mean, it's like in all caps. Ten exclamation marks. John Sterling with the Yankees. Don't get me started on him. But did John Sterling sign a journalist though? Right? He's a broadcaster. 
There's a distinction there. All right, he's all right. Not a, he's, not, he's not held to the same standard. I have no problem with Mario and Pemba or Rod Allen uh, giving each other a lap dance after every Tigers home run. I don't care. <laughs> That's you know, an image I'm not going to get out I, of my head. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. I don't care about Hawk Harrelson in Chicago for the White Sox have, having an aneurysm every time something goes wrong. I, I think that's their job to be a homer. It is not the job of a writer for the Detroit News to be a homer. Their job is to be objective. You're, you're constantly fighting as a journalist any sort of intrusion of bias into your reporting. It's mm-hmm. something that no one's exempt. It's a battle for every honest journalist. This guy is not waging that war. He, he just, he's got the white flag out and said, I'm not even going to hide this fact. He's a, he's a bigger Red Wings fan openly than any Wings fan I know. In his capacity while he's sitting up there in the press box, it is an affront to journalism. Greg is a good guy. He's a good technical writer. He's a talented guy. I think he knows how to talk to the audience, audience as you alluded to, but it is a failure of journalistic principles to be in the press box openly cheering for a team, and you, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. So I, I, I don't like what Greg Krupa does, and he will probably be up uh, every two or three weeks if I see something particularly appalling. Uh, but this is an ongoing thing, and it's been going on for about three years with this guy. Uh, again, talented guy, nice guy questionable journalism principles not that he's out there plagiarizing but you just you can't have the pom-poms in the press box it's a bad bit so again thank you to mike Barrowis for joining us was our guest today we were happy to bring back things i like things i don't like and i you know we've been working on this charles rogers thing for like three weeks now i've been just pounding this guy and uh he's like this is like, this is like the, the weekly charles rogers update I, I i've been teasing this charles rogers thing for like 18 years i feel like so coming not, up in 2019 geez, you would think that's the pace run i think i really do i think charles will be next but uh, if not we will have a good show for you at the beginning of next week uh again thank you for joining us thank you to mike barwis thank you to jag in detroit the wonderful producer of ours. That, uh, that's uh, Jag in Detroit on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get it out. Get it out. <laughs> Jag in Detroit. J-A-G. Yes. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you for joining us. We will be with you next week.